0: Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode four, Elise and I continue to investigate an astrophysical phenomenon from the Star Trek Discovery First Look trailer. We bring in my fellow Caltech Planetary Science graduate student, Christopher Spaulding. Chris has a bachelor's and master's degree from Cambridge University. Although he has a wide variety of scientific interests, his main graduate work is on the formation and evolution of early planetary systems with Professor Konstantin Batygin.
1: So working with Constantine, he's supposed to be a pretty fun professor to be a grad student for because he's in a band and he like, takes you guys surfing. So how's, how's been working with Constantine?
2: We haven't been surfing. We've been <laughs> swimming in, at, at Long Beach, but we haven't been surfing. Yeah, Constantine's a really cool dude. He was a professor by the time he was 28 years old. I actually started working with him while he was not actually a professor yet. He was half. He was the whole way across the country. He likes group bonding, including recently he took us paintballing to do some actual, you know, dynamical calculations. Whenever I, whenever we try to shoot each other, but overall he is he's a smart guy. Me and him and a few other students, we do a lot of simulations of planetary systems, and he somehow makes that super fun all the time, even more fun than it. Than it than it should be, and we are actually in a band together, which has performed several times. The seventh season. It has a website. If you yeah, want you to should check look it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and if awesome. you're ever
0: in Pasadena, uh, try to catch a live concert.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're 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 awesome, and their drummer their drummer is their their, their star.
0: The shameless plug. Full disclosure: Chris spalding <laughs> is the drummer. Um, really. <laughs> Well, um, so Chris, I know you're not necessarily a Trekkie, you wouldn't label yourself that, but that's okay, right? You're you're actually the first guest on this podcast who really isn't that immersed in the fandom of Star Trek, and that's wonderful, because Star Trek is all about diversity, uh, different people with different backgrounds coming together and harmonizing, so we're happy to have you aboard. How much Star Trek have you seen, Chris?
2: Well, I'm afraid the only Star Trek I've watched has been forced upon me by your illustrious host, um, Mike Wong. Um, Every birthday he shows an episode of Star Trek, so I've seen two. One where these furry animals called Tribbles attack a spaceship. (laughs) And, And another one where the team is trapped on some planet and need to go back in time to change something in order to get back. So I actually I actually rather enjoyed it I have to say so maybe I will watch more
1: These were both TOS episodes?
0: So, the first one was the Deep Space Nine episode where they revisit that original TOS episode. So it was Trials and Tribulations. 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 Trials and Tribulations. And so that was a really fun one. That involved a little bit of time travel. And then the other one was City on the Edge of Forever, which is one of the best uh, TOS
1: episodes. That's what I was thinking when you said the portal that takes people back in time and they need to (laughs) change something. I mean, that could have been a lot of episodes, but City on the Edge of Forever is so iconic.
2: CGI was top-notch for 1960
1: <laughs> Oh, man. So, so from your brief, your brief exposure to Star Trek at Mike's birthday parties, what is something that's caught your attention as a non-Trekkie?
2: So, apparently both of those episodes, although I only remember one of them, was involved with time travel. And time travel I always enjoy in TV shows, because it's always interesting to see how the writers deal with the various paradoxes and all the things that that come with the idea of time travel. For example, the famous grandfather paradox where if I go back in time, shoot my grandfather, then I'm never born, so I can never go and shoot him in the first place. So it's this it's this loop. And every writer has their own way of dealing with that in a in a in a spectrum of creativeness, but it does beg the question is time travel possible? And this is something which is an inspiring question. It has been an inspiring question for perhaps centuries. And as far as physics is concerned, time travel back in time is impossible. But time travel forward in time is possible, and you can show it with pen and paper that it is possible. Simply by moving faster than someone else in the room, time suddenly slows down for you and speeds up for them. So if you go away on a rocket ship and come back, everyone around you will be a little bit older than you. And in fact, astronauts have lost fractions of a second off their life from this process. So it's very small. You need to go very fast for it to be important. But it is a small truth to the idea of time travel, which I find inspiring.
0: Well, sounds like we should bring you back for another podcast all about Einstein's uh, theories of special and general relativity, which you can walk us through ad nauseum uh, as a, as a I great would, physicist joy Uh But this podcast right here is about protoplanetary disks. If you were watching the Star Trek Discovery trailer and you stopped at minute one, second eight, one oh eight, you would see this beautiful image of our uh, hero, Michael Burnham's in her EVA suit, staring at what appears to be a binary star system in formation. And Chris Spaulding was originally actually going to be our first guest on this podcast I, that I had planned because this image was what inspired me to start this podcast. I was watching the Discovery trailer and I was like, wow, somebody needs to talk about this from a scientific perspective. But Chris, you were away on a conference uh, in the UK, and it just so happened that Peter Gao was back that week for graduation, and so we recorded episode one with him, Then we needed to catch Courtney Dressing before she left for Berkeley, so we did episode two with her, and then we had Erica Carlson talking about binary stars and, and how they formed, and finally now we get to record episode four with you, Chris, so you can talk to us. But first of all, what is this conference that you are at that took you away for so long? Well, the conference
2: was—it actually had a lot to say about about protoplanetary disks and disks in general. It was a conference about dynamical astronomy in London, and essentially, dynamical astronomy is the study of how bodies in the galaxy or in the solar system interact gravitationally with each other. We've we've known all of since all the way back to Newton that there's a very simple form for the gravitational attraction between two bodies that have mass. So my hands are gravitationally attracting each other, although it's so small you don't notice it. Although, even though there's a simple way to write down the equation, in order to solve for the motion of more than two bodies is actually a very, very difficult problem and is continuing to be solved in ever greater levels of complexity, even today. There were there were sort of two standout things with the conference, and they were both disk-related. The first was, you might have heard that the spacecraft Cassini has been orbiting Saturn, which arguably is the most beautiful thing in the solar system, perhaps even the galaxy. Um, Saturn and its ring system is essentially an example of an astrophysical disk. And the spacecraft Cassini has been taking wonderful photographs for for years and years and years. I can't remember exactly how long two thousand and four or something like that.
0: I have to say, I waste so much time on the internet just looking at Cassini images. They're absolutely stunning.
2: As should as should you, listeners. They are they are worth the the procrastination, I guess. Um, but. Cassini is now nearing the end of its battery life and doing a suicide dive into the atmosphere of Saturn. And as it gets closer and closer and closer and closer to crashing into Saturn, it'll get closer and closer and closer up images of Saturn's rings. And some of those are mind-boggling. There are these, Describing it will not do justice, but there are these little propeller-shaped like swarms in the rings that we don't understand. There are, there are spokes in the rings, like a bicycle wheel, that we don't understand. There are patterns moving around the rings as coherent structures that, again, we do not understand. This is the beauty of science. We can say, I do not understand, and that is good, because it gives us something to do in the future. So that was, that was one of the two standouts, the Cassini images. The second is another type of disk. And this is different from a protoplanetary disk. So Mike said protoplanetary disk. And pro- protoplanetary disks are, as the name might suggest to you, disks of gas and dust out of which planets form. And the reason why disks are so important in general is that if you just if you just try to collapse any big thing in the galaxy, it'll have some angular momentum, it'll have some spin to it. And just like if you were to spin round and pull your arms in, you would spin faster. So anything that's collapsing under gravity with a little bit of spin will spin faster and faster and faster and faster until it is flattened into a pancake, a disk. And so disks are all over the place and this is why planets form out of disks because the collide that formed their star also spreads out into a disk. But another type of disk that this conference was looking at was disks that are around older stars, so our Sun is about half of the way through its lifetime. Whenever it reaches its final age of something like 12 billion or 13 billion years, it'll cast off its outer layers in a dramatic thing called a planetary nebula, which has nothing to do with planets, and leave behind a a core, which is essentially the ashes of the nuclear burning over its lifetime, and this is called a white dwarf. And white dwarfs are thought to be very pure hydrogen and helium objects, but recently people have found that there is calcium and magnesium and just rock at the surface of these things. And the only explanation is that there are disks of rock around these bodies almost the same as Saturn, and this rock is falling onto the surface of the white dwarf. and. Again, it's a mystery. How, how are these disks so close to the White Dwarf? Because the disk is so close to the White Dwarf, it's inside where the star used to be that formed the White Dwarf. And so there was an entire session at the conference dedicated trying to explain, you know, what's forming these? Is it comets? Is it, is it this? Is it that? And ultimately, it's, it's still, still open to, to hypotheses. Looks like it's comets breaking up very close to the, to the White Dwarf, though.
0: Very cool. <laughs>
1: So you've been talking about all of these disks that you're studying, but how do you actually go about studying that? I mean, there isn't really a protoplanetary disk in the solar system. like we, oh. We're the, the remnants of one, perhaps, but not. we don't have one here. We've got Saturn, like you said, but how do you go about, in your daily work, studying these things?
2: Okay, so it's a good question. Um, first of all, how do we even know that there are disks um, around other stars? The first proposal that, there, that planets form out of disks goes all the way back to some, some guy called Immanuel Kant in the 1700s, I think. And it was essentially simply because our the planets in our solar system are super flat. You could literally draw a giant pancake and all the orbits would fit in inside that pancake. Um, it caused him to say, well, maybe they just formed out of a pancake. The pancakes just formed out of gas. Arguably, that is the longest-standing correct idea about how planets form, because now with the Hubble Space Telescope, we actually have snapshots of disks where you can see the star in the center and see this big, dark cloud of gas around it. So that—that that is kind of the... It's more than a smoking gun, it's a a smoking disc for for the existence of discs that we can now see them. However, even before you can see them, you can know they're there because just like if you you hold out a, a mirror and the sun's behind you, you can see the glare of the sun in your eyes, discs reflect the light of their central star off them. And in reflecting off the disk, the light is changed in a very specific way, mostly because the disk is cooler than the star. And we can detect this as an extra glare, essentially, in our telescopes that tell us that there is a a disk there. The glare is in the infrared part of the spectrum, and it's known as an infrared excess because of that.
0: I thought that that excess was due to the thermal heat that the disk is emitting rather than reflected off
2: is that Yeah, okay. So I was I was taking an analogy too see, far. Okay. Yes, the 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 disk, the specifically the dust in the disk absorbs the heat and okay. of the star and heats up and then re-radiates that at a colder temperature Got which it. is in the infrared. Got it. So, thank you for catching that that oversimplification, Mike.
1: So, could you run us through just how planets come out of these sort of pancake structures?
2: Not in, not in full detail because it's still highly contentious how you, how you form a planet, surprising. You'd think it would be the, the, the easiest thing to explain in planetary science, how do you form them, but in fact it's very difficult. So essentially what comes out of, the, of the, what's called the interstellar medium, is very small dust grains that are only micrometers so you know you could fit a million of them across a typical table and so essentially what needs to happen is through little electrostatic charges on the surfaces they need to gradually stick together over over millions of years until eventually they form a planet but there are multiple steps in the way for example once these little objects stick and become about football sized then they run into a problem, because the way protoplanetary disks work is that what's keeping everything in orbit is the pull of gravity, which is an inward force. But the gas feels an extra force, namely it feels pressure with itself. This is why balloons will fly about the room whenever you you, you pop them, because the gas itself has a pressure. And this helps hold the gas in orbit so it doesn't need to orbit as fast to stay in orbit around the star and therefore this means that any solids like the football you put around the sun will feel a headwind from the gas and this headwind causes it to lose energy and you can show that within a hundred years you expect all the solids to just plummet into the central star.
0: All the footballs go crashing into the star. Now when you say football, I know it doesn't really matter, but do you mean American football? <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah. <laughs>
2: I, mean, I mean a soccer ball.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. uh, they're about to same size anyway. Yeah. So um, so this is a problem called the meter size barrier in the field. How do you How do you build stuff bigger than a meter or a football or a soccer ball if as soon as you get that big, it just cascades down into the sun. Um, and, essentially, the problem is still unsolved, but the, the most likely thing is that whenever a bunch of these footballs get together, rather than experiencing an individual headwind, they experience a headwind as a group. And this causes the group to slow down in its, in its velocity and catch other rocks that are coming in from above, until eventually so many rocks group together in this lump that their self-gravity causes them to collapse into something like an asteroid. The analogy often used is a bunch of cyclists like to cycle together as a what's called a peloton to save energy. And whenever they go by other cyclists, they're kind of sucked into that, that peloton. It's kind of what happens with all the rocks in the protoplanetary disk. Although cyclists don't have self-gravity, they don't tend to collapse into one mess unless something goes very wrong. But the rocks like to do this, and this is probably how asteroid-like objects form. It's something known as the streaming instability, if you want to look it up. So this gets you asteroids. Getting from asteroids to planets, again, is is a difficult step, which has a lot, of, a lot of different moving parts that aren't solved yet. But essentially, it's things crashing into each other, is what it looks like. It's as simple as that. Lots of asteroids crash into each other until they form something the size of Mars and then there's a few Mars-sized objects dotted across the disk, and there are these giant collisions that eventually form things like the Earth and bigger. And in order to get to something like Jupiter, you need to crash enough stuff together to have something which is ten times the mass of Earth. And once it's ten times the mass of Earth, It'll start sucking in loads of gas from around it and balloon up to Jupiter, which is 300 times the mass of Earth. There's a lot of stuff in Jupiter. So, that is a very, very whistle stop to our planet formation. There are lots of other intricacies in there.
1: Wow. <laughs> it sounds like it's a pretty complicated problem. Yeah. Um, Mike, did you want to go take a look at that picture again? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, here we go. You've got to
1: know if it's accurate now. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here we go again. We've got uh, Michael Burnham's inner her spacesuit looking at these, what appear to be two protoplanetary disks around two separate stars. One of them seems to be larger than the other. And there seems to be some kind of mass transfer between the stars. So Chris, when you look at this image, what aspects and processes of real protoplanetary disks are hinted at in here? Uh, and also, what would you change about this image to make it look more true to reality?
2: Okay, well, what strikes me immediately as being quite true is that there are two stars. For a long time, people think of stars and planetary systems as being in isolation from other stars. This is actually not true. Most stars form in clusters of gas out of which multiple stars form in the same environment. Whatever caused one star to form was there to cause the other stars. And so the fact that there are two stars here close is actually the norm for how planetary systems begin. Indeed, our own solar system may well have, have had a companion planet at some point. Companion so that, star? Sorry. Companion star. A companion star, yeah. It's hard to tell because they tend to get stripped very quickly early on whenever the cluster is young and and what we say dynamically hot, meaning all the stars are kind of rushing around until the more excited ones get kicked out, leaving the slightly more relaxed stars behind. Um, the fact that the two disks are also misaligned from each other is also interesting. That seems to be the way it works in reality. There isn't Just because the stars are close to each other doesn't mean that their disks need to be pointing in the same same direction or, or spinning in the same direction. And indeed, my own research is is related with, if you have a scenario such that there are two disks nearby each other which are not aligned with each other, you can actually show that the star's gravitational influence on each other can cause the disk to tilt. You can tilt the disk on its side and in turn tilt the planetary system that is forming within those disks on their side. And recently there's a lot of observations that show that Planetary systems are very often orbiting in a different plan from what you'd expect from the spin direction of their star. In our solar system, the sun spins, and it spins in a direction which is offset from that of the solar system by about 6 degrees. Um, so it's very aligned. 6 degrees is quite aligned. But in other solar systems, you get stars which are spinning upside down, the opposite direction from the direction in which their planets are orbiting, which is very, very hard to explain through standard formation scenarios. And so one way to do it is tilting a protoplanetary disk as this image is showing. So this image is getting at uh, a very, you know, up-to-the-minute idea in planetary science that disks can, can be tilted by nearby stars.
0: That's so cool.
2: So that is the most accurate thing about it. The rest um, strikes me as just trying to look spectacular, which it does. However, one thing of note is there's a light tunnel going between the stars, like uh, a filament of bright material. I don't exactly know what this is supposed to be representing. Stars do Exchange mass with each other if stars become close enough, the gravity of your companion star can overcome your self gravity and start ripping bits off your surface and I think that 's what the the artist is going for here. however, the way gravity works is that there 's something called a hill sphere and the hill hill was just the name of a scientist and the sphere the hill sphere is the sphere around a gravitating body where things are bound to it mm-hmm. i e if you're close to the Earth, you feel the Earth's gravity much stronger than you feel the Sun. That's why the Moon orbits the Earth and not the Sun. However, in order to exchange mass with another, with another companion, the star needs to be so big that it fills this hill sphere. This does happen in nature, but it's not happening in this image. Why? Because there is a disk around the star. You cannot have a disk that extends outside of the Hill sphere. It'll just be sucked onto the other star. So that is, that is one scientific problem with, with, with the image. If there was no disk around the stars, this image would actually be quite accurate because stars do exchange mass and it probably looks something
0: like this column of light. I see. Now looking closer at the image, there also appears to be some mass transferring between the two disks. So another way of fixing this image perhaps is to erase the line of, of, of light and mass going Directly between the stars and just leave that transfer of mass between the discs one could imagine that uh, this edge of the disk here is beyond the stars just beyond the star's hill sphere and leaving towards the other star or something like that is that
2: yeah yeah that that is actually that does happen the discs the the, the discs can fill the the hill sphere and and stuff can can move to another disk this is how I, this is this is actually quite common binary stars actually do this all the time. So that part is, that part is fine. I, I didn't actually notice that upon first glance.
1: How about all the rocks, the, the rubble and such? Is that expected?
2: The rubble is um, repeating a common sci-fi trick of making rocks a lot bigger than they actually would be, and more densely packed. For example, in sci-fi all the time, if you're in an asteroid field, You're literally having to turn left and right and left and right and go up and down to avoid all the rocks. When in reality, you could probably go on a straight line for for years and not meet anything. Um, So that is one thing about the image, that the disc is punctuated with all these big rocks. And each of the rocks, if you kind of think about it in its size comparison to the stars... A planet in itself.
1: It's like a, a little <laughs> Mars, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And some of them are big Marses. Some of them, like the ones near, I guess the near ones, the, the ones in the foreground. Maybe they're just close. Maybe they're supposed to be like super close. But the ones embedded in the disk are so big that this system, if you were to, if you were to plot it down as it is, half of it would be would be scattered away. Probably a lot of it into the line of sight of the camera. And half of it would collide together into bigger objects, planets themselves.
0: Now, if, you, if we play the trailer forward, our hero zooms off into the disk. Uh, is there any issue with that? Is there? Can we actually go exploring a protoplanetary disk if we got up close to it and wanted to fly through it?
2: I don't. I don't see why not. There, the gas in protoplanetary disks is not very dense. It's not like there would be a lot of drag on your on your spaceship it would be very little different from us exploring the solar system all you've got to contend with is the gravity of the star and the planets navigating the system would be a little different from from how say we've navigated to saturn and jupiter and and all the other planets of the solar system so there's no problem getting there is the issue because the, the nearest protoplanetary disk to us i don't know the exact figure but it's you know it's many many light years
1: there's a lot of new stuff being thought about right now. So what's an observation or breakthrough that you're sort of looking forward to in the future? Like what what piece of knowledge or what theory that people are coming up with is like most exciting to you?
2: Yeah, so there are there are lots of answers to that, but the most exciting to me is recently a new telescope has come online called ALMA, A L M A, the the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. They're always so charismatically named and it has produced the most stunning images of disks to date and specifically we've been able to see the disk in all its glory with these gaps in the disk and indeed if you look at Saturn's rings again Saturn's rings is permeated with these gaps and in Saturn's rings most of those gaps are sculpted by little moon-like objects which are which are gravitationally interacting with the disk and causing these little little gaps and so Gaps are suggestive of planets in a protoplanetary disk. They do exactly the same thing. They carve out the gas. But there are other things that can form the gaps, and so people don't want to jump to the conclusion of, oh, it's a a planet forming, when it could be some weird fluid dynamics thing that we don't understand yet. A A big breakthrough would be to actually see a planet in one of these gaps, which is only possible with current technology if it's a very big planet, because it's notoriously difficult to actually directly see planets, because stars are so much brighter than planets. But it is possible, and I think even a professor at Caltech here, Heather Knutson, is is thinking about this problem. How do you see planets within disks? So that would be that would be a big breakthrough. That would allow us to link the gaps which we can already see to the planets that we cannot see yet and and get a handle on how planets look and behave in the very early stages of their formation.
0: That concludes Episode 4 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you've learned about astrophysical disks, especially protoplanetary disks from which all sorts of strange new worlds can form. Come September 24th, We look forward to exploring whatever lies inside of those Star Trek Discovery Discs with you. See you out there.